they hesitated and waited. And now we're in this place where Title 42 has become the thing and the thing that both Republicans and Democrats are using to say, we don't want immigrants anymore. Like, this is our strategy. Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. I am so excited for this conversation we're going to have today. In today's episode, Artie, Phil, and I are here with Silky Shaw. Silky is the executive director of Detention Watch Network, which is a grassroots organization working to abolish immigration detention in the United States. Silky, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the Death Panel. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to getting into our broader conversation for today about immigration detention and in particular discussing how the Biden administration has dropped the ball on its promises to end the Trump era usage of an obscure public health law called Title 42 um, and the pandemic to further pre-existing anti-immigrant agendas. But before we get into that, for those who are not familiar with your work, can you briefly explain um, what your background is, Silky, and what your work is with Detention Watch Network and also what DWN does and what the purpose is? Yeah, sure. Um, So I am the executive director of Detention Watch Network, but I'm an organizer. I've been working on issues related to immigration, racial justice, the prison industrial complex for almost 20 years now. And, you know, Detention Watch Network has actually been around. It's our 25th anniversary this year. We've been around since the passage of the 1996 laws, which really sort of shifted the paradigm on immigration and and led to much more detention and deportation. And so we're a broad membership coalition. We've shifted a lot over the years, but we have like a base of grassroots organizations, policy organizations, legal service providers, people who are directly impacted themselves, who've been detained or their loved ones have been detained, people of faith, et cetera, who are part of the organization, a part of the coalition, essentially um, trying to abolish immigration detention in the U.S., which is a position we came to in 2012. And a lot of our work centers around reducing the number of detention beds. So there was a period of time when a lot of the work focused on exposing the conditions and what was harmful, but we ultimately saw that that led to a lot more detention and just like surface level tweaks of detention, but not actually a reduction in the system. So we really strongly believe that we should abolish the system. And so our strategies focus on local and state level efforts to shut down existing detention centers or stop expansion. And at the federal level, also pressuring the administration to shut down facilities, which we have successfully done in the last year and a half, but also really focusing on appropriations, the federal budget, which has just exponentially grown for immigration detention um, in the last 40 years and, and really trying to reduce that. Right. Absolutely. And and I mean, I think one of the things that I appreciate about um, especially a lot of the work that you've done communicating on sort of what the 
What the real issue with anti-immigrant like laws and rhetoric is, is that part of it is not just it's just not just the process of deportations. It's actually the entire enforcement apparatus. Right. So you have a lot of like reform language and people talking about, oh, we have to sort of end these choke points that are the more visible points of, um, for example, you know, where we see like the state really militarizing immigration. But there are also all these other components, for example, like something that I know DWN organized against for years, which was things like quota minimums of minimum numbers of beds that ICE facilities sort of had as part of contracts. Um, And I know that that was abolished at like the federal level, I think, what, in 2017, but it still exists in all these little local contracts in local municipalities. And, you know, it's stuff like contracts with county prisons. And it's very tied up into the kinds of ways that the state builds itself through uh, what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment, which is, you know, the kind of surveillance and capturing of populations as a way of moving money around through state and non-state actors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we like to make clear a lot is that we don't just work against immigration detention because it's harmful and we don't believe in incarceration and all those things. Yes, absolutely. We don't believe in uh, immigrants should be incarcerated or anyone for that matter. But I do think that, um, you know, a big piece of it is that detention facilitates deportation. Detention, it like the existence of the facilities actually allows for mass deportation. And and so the quota itself, I think, is a big piece of it. And, you know, even though there isn't an actual quota in the budget currently or a language which said we shall maintain no less than X number of beds, there's still a number of beds that are being funded. And like a lot of decisions are based on this totally arbitrary number of beds. Um, And so they basically, you know, they make they make these decisions constantly. I mean, here in Washington state where I live, the Northwest Detention Center had has a quota, I think, of now eleven hundred beds and the facility itself is about fifteen hundred beds. So um, currently, because of the pandemic, they are not detaining as many people because of social distancing, supposedly. Obviously, we know that doesn't happen inside these facilities, <laughs> but but they're getting paid. So Geo Group is still getting paid for that 1,100 beds no matter what. And then they have this other weird incentive that happens where if they detain people like more than 1,100 people in the facility at any given time, they get sort of like a coupon for like a cheaper amount for the other 400. (laughs) Um, So there's these really just like, yeah, there's totally perverse incentives throughout the system. And one of the things we're actually going to come out with a report on this soon that sort of shows like the existence of a facility in a community actually sort of dictates the number of people who are apprehended in that facility because Mm. the quota exists uh, at the local level. And ICE agents are like, okay, we have these beds. We need to go find people. And, you know, I think this is an important piece of the conversation because a lot of folks within the immigrant rights movement have been concerned about closing facilities because they're like, oh, you know, people are going to be transferred to far far away facilities. But the reality is, is that like a lot less people will get targeted if we close down a facility. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind in sort of the context of the way detention exists. And then beyond that, like ICE just makes arbitrary decisions about Mm -hmm. who to detain and not to detain all the time. I mean, that that's such a big part of why we're just like, there's no reason to say anything other than end the system. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems like the I think when people confront something as sort of vast and complex as this network of institutions that lock up immigrants, it's it's one of those where do you start problems. And I think you've sort of rightly pointed out 
that there are a lot of places where you can start with a problem that actually allows it to persist and might even make it harder to deal with. And I, and, and sort of like focusing in on like reducing the number of beds and just like eliminating the institutions is like a, a, a good focal point because it actually does like, there is this like supply side effect where like beds generate, you know, demand for apprehensions. Yeah. And there's all kinds of like little fiscal incentives there. I'm curious what it's like to actually fight for that and, and what it's like to like make appeals to that. It probably in, in context where there's a lot of, there's a, not a lot of attention to this issue. Um, and, and B, you know, you're, you're talking to people who, are probably not predisposed to to see this as as, as a problem. Like, what is that? You said, like, I, I want to know a little bit sort of inside that movement uh, world. Like, what is that like? Yeah, I mean, I actually think, you know, moving towards a framework of abolition has been probably one of our most successful strategies. I will, I will say working on immigration detention for the last 20 years, in the last two months, I've had some of the, like, the biggest victories I could imagine. And it seems wild in the context of immigration right now because things are so bad. But the reality is, is our sort of kind of pushing this question of why do we even do this in the first place was Mm -hmm. always like it really, it really sort of opened up the conversation in a lot of ways, because I think everyone just assumed and under the Obama administration for many years, a lot of people pushed, you know, alternatives to detention. And now we're seeing this growth of surveillance. So that's a that's a important piece of the conversation. But in terms of detention itself, to some degree, it's easier in the context that people who are detained, incarcerated by ICE are not serving a sentence. So, you know, the sort of arguments that we've been able to make are here are folks. And even if they have a past criminal conviction, they've already served time for that criminal conviction mm-hmm. or they've you know, or they're just on parole, you know, they've, they've never actually been incarcerated for a period of time. So I think there's like, there's this way that when we are talking to local counties or city councils or state legislators, that that has helped in our, in our, you know, like, oh, we don't want to incarcerate undocumented immigrants. They're part of our community, et cetera, et cetera. So those, those arguments have been helpful, although there's still a sort of criminalizing logic that happens that we we are constantly trying to combat because there's still transfers from State Department of Corrections or county jails to ICE all the time, even if, you know, people in the community might not be targeted in the same way. I think, you know, there's sort of, to me, there was like one us coming to a framework of abolition and that was in 2012. When Trump came in, it was like all the, you know, everything like everything became much clearer for the immigrant rights movement. It's sort of, mm-hmm. I mean, that has faltered, I will say, <laughs> over the last year and a half. But, I, you know, there was like the kumbaya moment of like, oh, my God, like things are so bad. Actually, all these folks who've been fighting for legalization, who have doing it, have been doing it in this way that's like a very good immigrant, bad immigrant frame, mm-hmm. started to realize that actually none of this really, like, like they are just going to go after everyone and they're going to use this framework for everyone. And so that allowed for us to sort of push the boundaries of how people could think about detention. And, you know, Trump really politicized detention itself. And ICE actually did this thing. I mean, this is sort of going back to the quota piece, like they would do this thing constantly where they would, you know, get a certain amount of money from 
Congress to fund detention beds and then overspend that amount. And then Congress would bail them out. So we were able to use sort of what ICE was doing. And like, for instance, one example is during one of the hurricanes, there was however many million dollars taken from FEMA to build more detention beds. And it was like right in the middle of a hurricane. And we were able to get, you know, Jeff Merkley came out and sort of exposed it and showed it. Sort of, so there was this way that we could be like, hey, look, they're just actually evil and detention <laughs> right. shouldn't exist. And like abolish ice became a thing. And that really helped. And I think, you know, with even the Biden administration, like knowing people who are in that administration who worked on detention before, even Mayorkas, for all his faults, has said, like, there is an overuse of detention. He's, like, signaled that. So I think all of those things wouldn't have happened if, like, one, we, like, we were really clear at some point, like, this thing shouldn't happen, period. We should stop doing this. And then all of the, like, Trump era stuff. But I will say, like, for me, what I saw during the summer of 2020, 20 during the George Floyd rebellion and how people were able to move in that context. Cause it was like, look, this system is, you know, so harmful and we're seeing it in real time and what it's doing. And then it wasn't actually that far of a leap for groups like the American immigration council or ACLU to start being like, wait, why are we even okay with some detention? Right. Um, and so I, I think it's, you know, I think it's an evolution of all of those pieces um, but I will say, I mean, in the context of those wins that I named and, and that included, I mean, I think there's been like 10, 11 county jails that are no longer being used for ICE detention after this last year and a half because of local state and federal level campaigns. And we got the Biden administration actually put forth a budget for detention beds that was 26% less, like the number of beds was 26% less than um, the previous budget. And that's like the first time we've seen a reduction. And I think to some degree, I mean, this wouldn't be happening without movement. Like, I, I think we have to really name that win, but I think they're also realizing like the logic isn't there. Like they, they, yeah. like they can't detain everyone who comes across <laughs> the border. They just can't do it. So then there sort of becomes a question about like, well, what are they doing with the system in the first place? Right, right. Absolutely. And before we sort of get into talking about how this has maybe like run into the situation with COVID, right? Because like any congregate facility obviously is not hermetically sealed. It has this contact with the community, whether that's through guards or visitors or people being cycled in and out or transferred from facility to facility. We've talked about this a lot relative to like other congregate populations like long-term care, nursing homes, prisons, jails, um, et cetera. But like before we get in, into talking about that, can we talk a little bit about the conditions of detention before COVID and what some of those dynamics actually are? Because I think this idea of the capacity to detain being created by the enforcement procedures is really interesting. And I'd love to just sort of drill into that specifically um, before we talk about how that fits into COVID, because obviously there are things about immigration detention, which are, you know, they are functions of the state's capacity to make die, right? There is rotting food, separation of families, deprivation from the outdoors, lack of medical care, all of the sort of attendant public health risks of congregant facilities, you know, whether that's like spread of diseases that are normally controlled, like we have like a cholera epidemic in some in some facilities in the United States right now. And 
it's not just these dire conditions of incarceration, right? But it's the decisions to incarcerate or criminally enforce immigration like this at all, which is creating the kind of capacity for needing to, quote unquote, store people in these facilities, which then are then subject to these sort of austere conditions of slow death. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to name and about immigration detention specifically is that everything that happens with immigration detention is completely outsourced and subcontracted. And it's not just private prisons. It's also county jails. And even the ICE run facilities or the ICE owned facilities are actually run by a lot of different contractors. And so that's partially how these sort of quotas exist in, in these contracts where it's like, well, they have to know how how many people that they're serving because they have this contract, essentially. And and that means, you know, you would have sheriffs boasting, oh, like I'm getting sixty dollars a day or eighty dollars a day to hold somebody in immigration detention or hold somebody in my county jail for ICE but I'm only spending $12 a day on them. So all this other money is going to the county. And so that's like one thing to sort of keep in mind in terms of the just general conditions of immigration detention. So I think there's like a range. So I think there's the like most severe context to like the sort of day-to-day just isolation um, of detention and how that, how people experience that. And I mean, in, in terms of the most severe piece, there have been, numerous deaths in detention, numerous deaths that were preventable in detention that, you know, even ICE's own review of those deaths have said, actually, it was substandard medical care or it was botched emergency response or it was inadequate staffing that led to this death, essentially. And in fact, so much of the reform of the detention system has sort of been driven by stories of these deaths, I think, in the early Obama era, there had been actually all these exposés from Washington Post and New York Times that showed, you know, I think even in a Washington Post like story that like the majority of deaths in the 30 deaths that happened in one year, like the majority of people were like the average age was 36 years old. So you have a lot of deaths of people who are young. Most people in detention are much younger um, who are dying of cardiac arrest, a lot of suicides. I mean, it's a very grim experience in detention. So I think the, you know, the conditions are so abysmal, but also the, the sort of just general framework of detention is, you know, abuse, like there's abuse from guards, verbal, physical, sexual abuse, segregation, solitary confinement is quite commonly used and often used as retaliation when people are sort of speaking up about the concerns of conditions inside. I mean, poor medical care, like is just, rampant, um, but also, you know, like rotten, moldy food, just really malnourishment in every way. So many stories I hear of people who are just like, I'm not feeling well. And then ultimately what they get is either water, like they're just like, oh, drink more water or here's an Advil. And that's like all that happens (laughs) um, often. And so, you know, in, and, and the deaths are quite horrific. I mean, like I said, like cardiac arrest, but also like a lot of deaths where people were having a heart attack and they waited an hour to call an ambulance or people who are going through alcohol withdrawal and they just sort of ignored it. And then somebody ended up dying and there's multiple cases of that. And so it's, it's, it's sort of wild. I mean, one of the things that has sort of come up is like, oh, well, detention is often in like remote settings and rural communities. And 
So one argument sometimes advocates will make was like, well, we need detention in urban centers where there are hospitals near big hospitals so that they (laughs) can transfer people from the detention facility to the hospital where the hospital will proceed to ignore them longer. But that liability will be shifted. The death will be off the facility. The proximity of the hospital is the problem. Exactly. I really appreciate the way that you set this up, Silky, with foregrounding um, the bragging of, of a sheriff. Right. This kind of typical thing that we actually you see all the time if you look into sort of local coverage of de- detention facilities and state budgets, you know, there is this capacity, right, to um, capture people and put them in these facilities that is created by these funding models, in particular by these contracts and these sort of commitments to these businesses. And this is something that, um, you know, when when I hear of it, it, reminds me so much of the fight for closing asylums and state hospitals, because that was also one of the big issues at play in that fight, which is still ongoing and has been going on for decades. But one of the problems with closing these facilities is that there are all these sort of economic aspects of the state and also many private businesses that are tied up in this funding. And because of defunding in other areas and funding that's gone into revenue from them. Right. right, And all this funding that's gone into building up that infrastructure, it's shifted that sort of priority of where that fiscal actual source of, of, um, you know, fiscal revenue comes from, right, from somewhere where it could be used for another capacity to one where it's extracted from the containment of a specific population, which is actually sort of like what the theorist Marta Russell called the money model of disability. And she was just talking about nursing homes. But that idea of like, oh, this population is going to be made of use to the economic order through their captivity and through the kind of contracts and the money that's generated from having to congregate, care for, capture, and administer all of these people, right, who are deemed like not valuable enough as individuals to be given like a whole life and a whole social life in society. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And in so many ways, the system just sort of perpetuates itself in that context. I mean, we, you know, I think there's There's a lot of frameworks when we think about immigration or incarceration in general, that's like very much from a like political legal discourse, like, oh, this is what's changing about the laws. This is what's changing about sort of like how we think about race or exclusion, inclusion in this country. But it's really a a political economy argument, too. Like ultimately, the, the system has sort of functioned in this way that you know, now we have like in a lot of our fights and in many of the fights that we've done at the local level, the question is about that revenue and the the graphs and the, they show, oh, but we're getting this revenue. So we don't want to lose this. I, you know, even in the county and I that I live in, there was this there's been this proposal for a new jail for some time. And one of the arguments from like, I swear, I felt like I was in like Parks and Rec going to this county council meeting, but I was like, <laughs> it was like. One of the arguments was, oh, well, all these climate refugees are going to start coming. So we need this jail, essentially. (laughs) And it's just wild to think about how much, um, you know, those decisions are based on what the needs of the county are versus like how we treat people humanely or what we do in terms of care. Right, of course. And also in the context of when it comes to immigrant justice, you have a population that is so easy to get the general public to discount and dehumanize, right? That it becomes this very difficult 
balance, I think, between trying to fight the defunding, right? And also know the fact that essentially you're also fighting this uh, really ongoing centuries long battle against this sort of conflation and stigma between like migration and disease and migration and like population replacement and, you know, the destruction of culture and society. So it's a, you know, it's a difficult task. You're dealing with two of like the biggest weaponized ideas of like our modern era, which is like xenophobia and the political economy of scarcity. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, it's gotten, it's interesting because, you know, the immigrant rights movement for the most part has been a movement, at least some like modern sort of version of the movement since 2006 has very much been a movement that is trying to push for legalization of undocumented people in the U.S. But actually, like our frameworks and our ability to sort of push back around people who are coming to the U.S. is that much harder now. And and it's all it's always been hard, but I think at some level, like the base isn't quite there. And, you know, the Democrats have zero vision on this. And so it's it it is just a, a huge challenge to make the case, especially in the context of things being so abysmal for people, like people's basic needs not being met in the U.S. and then trying to say, oh, actually, we want these other folks to come. There was actually messaging research done recently that I was really taken aback by where, you know, there was these sort of stories about people, you know, a lot of the folks that we work with, and especially since 1996, a a lot of people who are legal permanent residents who have a past criminal conviction have been targeted for detention and deportation. And so we, you know, sort of lay out those cases, sometimes really um, serious cases um, and say, OK, you know, they might have committed this crime or this thing happened, but they 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 don't deserve to be deported. And this is why. And um, they've been here for 30 years, et cetera. And then you have the case of the woman and child fleeing Central America wanting to um, seek asylum. And actually, in that sort of polling that happened, people were much more sympathetic to the person who had been here for 30 years and the woman and child fleeing from wow. you know, Central America. So it, it's very, it's become that much more this framework of like Americanness. Like, you are you like, are you actually like, are you serving our communities? Are you in our community versus? like people who are arriving and that Coming from has like been, without. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So can we talk about a little bit like, because obviously this dynamic is incredibly complex and it's longstanding. And there's also this long history, obviously of the kind of um, cultural idea of immigration as being sort of a vector of disease. Can we talk about how the situation with COVID and the conditions of the pandemic have sort of, maybe shifted, changed, or like altered some of the pressures that are on the way that the sort of extractive detention system works right now? COVID very much was, I think like people's framework was like, oh, because of COVID, we are, we have less people in detention now. And that was actually for a few reasons. One is people were being deported. So, I mean, the other thing right. like that sort of happened in this context was actually a lot of people were continuing to be deported while they had COVID and actually spreading COVID to other countries. And that was a huge concern. People in detention were also like getting COVID. There was some, you know, I think a lot of people thought, oh, people are being released because of COVID. There were a few releases, like, a, like a, you know, a lot of the, some releases, but not a significant number. And some related to this class action lawsuit from 
before the pandemic called Prehat that was specifically around um, medical care and detention and what people needed. So there were some releases that are happening to vulnerable folks. But the other reason, I think the other two reasons that I think, you know, are important to name. One is that actually because there's been so much organizing against enforcement policies at the local and state level, it's been harder, like especially in places like California or New Jersey, where you have some of the largest immigrant populations, like the number of people being funneled into the detention system was not the same as it was, say, in, under the Obama administration. But lastly, and you know, I think we'll get into this more, is really the border closures. So actually, like the fact mm-hmm. that the border was closed, both through the migrant protection protocols, Title 42, and just like everything they did, like that people weren't being brought into the country as much. So that's that's another thing to sort of name about like how we got to a reduced number of beds. And that actually helped us in so many ways make the case that actually we don't need detention or we can move away from having this size of a detention system. So I think that was important. But overall, I mean, I think detention, like any other congregate setting in prisons and jails in the U.S., um, sort of did, you know, in, in every way, I think people were just completely at a loss of what to do inside. I think people like they they weren't, I mean, in so, so many ways, like not, they didn't get soap. They didn't have the things that they need, the PPE, et cetera. Um, you know, attempts at social distancing, attempts at quarantine, quarantine, it often means segregation. People, I think we, we sort of touched on this before, but actually a lot of people like ICE has been doing this more and more now where they are releasing people when they're sick and people have died since they've been in detention. So I think that like overall, like the COVID response has been sort of dismissive, people not wearing masks, et cetera. Um, and also just like by having that congregate setting seeing COVID actually spread more in communities where detention centers exist, I think was a big piece of like the impact of ICE, ICE's response. Yeah. And can we talk um, specifically now, can we shift to talking about Title 42? Because you mentioned this change of the, uh, I guess, sort of expulsions and the closing of the southern border of the United States, which was a project that Stephen Miller had been trying to accomplish for a long time under the Trump administration, but um, was ultimately able to accomplish through the public health crisis itself that like COVID presented. So for the last two years, uh, border security regimes have turned away migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, including those who are seeking asylum using a public emergency health order called Title 42. So Title 42, uh, as I said, it was sort of a the brainchild of the Trump administration xenophobia whiz kid Stephen Miller to repurpose Um, an old provision of the 1944 Public Health Service Act um, in order to, you know, essentially close the border. This 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 title is framed as aiming to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. And according to the law, whenever uh, at the time, whenever the U.S. Surgeon General or now the CDC director determines that there is a communicable disease in another country, health officials have the authority with the approval of the president to, quote, prohibit the introduction of persons and property from such countries or places for as long as they determine necessary. So since the 1960s, that authority has been under the CDC. It was transferred from the Surgeon General to the CDC. And so this is essentially 
a uh, a idea of like what something that you could use if there was suddenly you know like a barge of infected rats uh, coming in to a U.S. port, right? And yeah. so it was like the idea was like this is like the ultimate public health security law that you can give the you know agencies the authority to step in and act in in this kind of reactive way to outside public health crises coming in. And this is not the first law of its kind like this in the United States. There, I mean, there was a similar law approved by Congress in 1893 during a cholera em- epidemic. You have the Chinese Exclusion Act. You have a long history of policies like this being stood up in the context of disease outbreaks, which essentially use public health, public safety, and concern about the spread of disease as a ruse or a sort of stand-in justification in order to further, ultimately, anti-immigrant agendas. So... Title 42 itself, right? It, functionally, what it's been doing is essentially closed the southern border of the United States. So, Silky, you know, could you talk about what that looks like? On April 1st, uh, the Biden administration announced that they were going to let this expire at the end of May. And I, you know, there's a lawsuit to try and prevent that. Can we just talk about essentially how it's working in practice? Yeah, it's, I mean, you sort of said it. it's basically like, been used as a political tool to allow, like make it so people can't apply for asylum. Like it's a, it's a desire to sort of end asylum essentially. So yeah, basically, you know, whenever somebody comes to a port of entry, if they, they are asking for asylum, they can go to a border patrol officer or CBP officer and say, you know, I'm asking for asylum. And sort of what happens now is rather than them being able to do that is that they are quote unquote expelled. Um, and, you know, these are various pieces of like, you know, expel versus deport, et cetera. But essentially they're expelled, quote unquote, and they are either put on a bus back to Mexico or flown to Haiti or Guatemala or whatever country that they're coming from. And there's been, I think, nearly two million expulsions since March 2020. So millions of people, like tons of people just completely not having an ability to apply for asylum at the border. And the conditions, like if they're in Mexico and there's also another policy called the Migrant Protection Protocols, which means that people, they can apply, apply for asylum, but they have to wait for their hearing in Mexico. Right. They can't like they can't actually come into the U.S. and do it in the U.S. And so that means that, you know, both of those policies combined has meant that actually like most people are turned away. I think, you know, some instances where people can come in are specifically are unaccompanied children. Um, are allowed to come in. And that's also grown the sort of number of people in child detention under the responsibility of health and human services. Um, And so people can apply for asylum. Conditions are really bad at the border in Mexico because of the border, because of the crisis has been been created by the existence of border militarization. People are kidnapped, are, you know, so many horrible conditions for their, you know, existence on the border, people have died, like it, it's quite horrific. And so I think in terms of Title 42, and how it works, like, even though it's this policy that has was supposedly around public health, and it's not specific to immigration in any way, um, has become this tool to end asylum. And I mean, I think right now, in terms of where the debate is around Title 42, this was ultimately something that Stephen Miller, under the Trump administration, had tried 
with the flu, with just a regular flu outbreak um, prior to the pandemic, but it didn't work. And then the pandemic was sort of like the reason that this was allowed to move forward. But now that it is um, enacted and existing, there's like a large contingent of lawmakers who are like very not interested in seeing it go away. And, you know, in general, can we can we sort of talk about what's going on right now in terms of what has been promised. Because on April 1st, as I said, the CDC has announced basically that they are going to let Title 42 expire, which started um, the sort of outcry to keep it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of wild. I mean, nobody really, I mean, I'm sure y'all are aware, but like, I think a couple of years ago, none of, many of us had no idea what Title 42 was. It was a totally obscure law and it became, you know, the defining thing of the end Trump era and now Biden era um, on immigration. And it's, you know, I was in Tucson a few weeks ago for like a meeting that we were having and I turned on the local news and there was this whole segment about Title 42 and the concerns around Title 42. And I was just like, wow, what on earth? Like people, people are now it's become this like the thing that is defining immigration in the U.S. right now. And that is just supremely bizarre. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you talked about this a little bit. I mean, Stephen Miller had this whole strategy to find something to exclude immigrants. There was actually a big mumps outbreak that happened, I think, in 2018, 2019 um, in detention centers where like 57 facilities had an outbreak of mumps and he was trying to use something to to make it so they could exclude immigrants that way and had a whole bunch of other things. And he, he sort of did this thing where he both looked at immigration law, but then started looking at all these other laws too. And and what was the thing? And then of course the pandemic came along and title 42 was there. And so he, he started using it in that context. And then, I mean, I think what we're reaping right now is sort of what you were saying at the end there, Beatrice, like basically Biden isn't fighting a lot of these things. And so Biden waited a really long time to get to this place where they were going to stop using title 42. And we know that there's been this framework of going quote unquote, back to normal, for much longer than this moment where they're actually finally saying we're going to end the use of Title 42. Um, but this has sort of been true on a lot of different things. I mean, early on in the in Biden's presidency, he put forward this moratorium on deportations, um, which was like a huge win for the movement. So incredible. But then ultimately it was blocked through litigation and they didn't really fight it. They just sort of like, oh, OK, I guess we can't do this now. And I think Too they bad. expected that to happen. <laughs> And I think similarly, um, you know, they attempted to end the migrant protection protocols and similarly it was blocked. I think with Title 42, I think there is actually like there's a mixed bag because you have stories about Susan Rice, like actively trying to get more people on flights, like deportation flights because of Title 42 and, you know, being frustrated that there's empty beds or empty seats in those flights. Um, (laughs) And actively trying to say we shouldn't give vaccines to migrants because Ugh. that's an incentive for them to come. So you had like the Susan Rices in the White House who are, you know, intensely anti-immigrant. Um, but then you have other people who are actually like, no, this is just so wrong. We have to end this. This is not justifiable anymore. But the question is like their political will. They're so, so nervous about right. the midterms that they are just like balking at everything. So on Title 42, I think what's been, you know, it's. It's unsurprising to have Manchin and Cinema, you know, use it as this tool and obviously like sort of with the Republicans to to sort of question whether we should get more COVID-19 aid. 
Um, but also then you have like Raphael Warnock in that sort of mix as well, which is really concerning where like more moderate Dems are sort of coming along to that side and like Biden not actually doing much to push back. And I think this is this is sort of just like what we've seen on a lot of different fronts. There's also this other border program policy, whatever political theater called um, Operation Lone Star that Governor Greg Abbott in Texas put forth that is prosecute, like bringing people in and prosecuting and holding them in jail, like basically outside of the confines of like what happens with the federal government. And Biden's not even really fighting that. Like the DOJ is not going after Greg Abbott. And like as much as we can go on, I could go on for days about the problems with the Obama administration and Janet Napolitano when she was DHS secretary. Like they actually fought the SB 1070 law in Arizona and the show me your papers. I mean, because they wanted to have authority over it. But still, it was (laughs) it was something it was like they were actually like acknowledging the problems with the state taking this role on immigration. And Biden is, you know, just they're just operating not just with like bad politics and values, which we saw under the Obama administration, but also like fear, like constant fear. Right. Right. Um, And I think that's what's been such a huge challenge around Title 42 is that if he had ended it last year, like there, you know, there could have been things that were done to like address, you know, at the border, like a number of Ukrainian refugees, thousands of Ukrainian refugees have been able to been processed quite quickly. It's not actually been that hard. Right. Um, And that could have happened and we could have gotten to a place where we could have been there, but instead they hesitated and waited. And now we're in this place where title 42 has become the thing. And the thing that both Republicans and Democrats are using to say, we don't want immigrants anymore. Like this is our strategy. And so like, this is actually where I'm I'm kind of curious about your theory of the case, because I think along a number of issues that we focus on in this podcast related to health, related to just the sort of seems like increasingly the basic kind of material conditions for for like living um, the, you know, Democrats have taken, you know, the most generous description is the uh, easiest and sort of lowest impact way to to deal with those issues. And I think a, a variety of different kind of conventional explanations of that swirl around. Like one is just like they're all, you know, just complete their 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 policy positions within the Biden administration are not really substantively that different from the Trump administration, which, as you say, is, is like it's like a little bit more complicated than that. Um, there's a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, sort of within the administration, uh, there's the sort of pin it all on mansion and cinema as as sort of obstruction points. But that does not explain why the executive branch doesn't take a lot of action sort of on its own. Um, and I sort of wonder if this my my conventional understanding or like the, the the hypothesis that like runs through my head is that the Democratic Party can't like somehow figure out how to make this a political advantage for them beyond doing the most visible uh, but but surface level uh, kinds of policy reforms that that do kind of speak to this fairly like narrow, um, I, I think, like N- NPR listener kind of base um, that they're that they're trying to get up. They can't actually see a way in which the political economy could change if they were to embrace 
a more full-throated uh, approach to immigrant political incorporation, like, and, you know, and, and to, and to legalization. Like they, they have like, it, it's like fundamentally about the way that they understand uh, not not like any of these policy issues as a matter of human rights, but like where their political incentives lie. That is the her, like horizon of possibility that's in part limited. And I, I sort of like which is why I made the whole like conspiracy replacement theory thing. It seems so preposterous is like so facially preposterous. Right. Is that like that you have to presume that like Democrats actually care about you know, building this like big sustainable, you know, dynamic political majority is so obvious that they don't and that they can like, you know, whatever, survive in politics as a party by like limping along. But like, what's your sort of theory of the case as to why the why the administration has been so reticent in a lot of these ways? I wish I had much more to say than like their fear of losing. Like it feels hard because I think at some level, again, sort of going back to this framework, I think a lot of us thought post-Trump, I mean, and it was wild. I will say that first, that first like couple of days of the Biden administration, I kind of couldn't believe what was happening. I was like, wow, <laughs> like there are actually some really meaningful shifts that we're seeing, um, to, you know, the deportation moratorium being one of them, but also like, you know, in that moratorium, they actually didn't even have like a provision on people's past criminal convictions like they were you know they were like putting forth a bill for legalization that was that didn't actually have criminalization in it like it was wild how much we actually started to see some shifts and and we were hearing sort of theories about like like you know i at some point there was a rumor that there was actually going to be an end to the use of private prisons in the detention context. So like, you know, they've, they've stopped using, or they've started to stop using private prisons for the Bureau of Prisons and U.S. Marshals, but, um, and some of those have become ICE detention centers, but in the detention context, they were saying this, which would have been much more significant because about 80% of detention beds are private. Um, so there was all this, this moment where it actually felt like we could have real impact and they were going to end MPP and they were going to, you know, all these things. But then, I mean, like on the private prison angle, for instance, like I always was questioning that because it wasn't it's never been about private prisons. It's about the fact that they're like they want to detain people and they've like ultimately ended up prioritizing private prisons for various reasons. Um, and like they kind of can't do it without them. So it's not like they'll say publicly we're against this thing, but then don't do anything about it. Um, and I think there's, you know, a question of pressure or other things. But I, I, you know, I think the theory of the case on on this in general has been like Republicans have been able to use so much of this framework to like perpetuate these criminalizing frames, these white supremacist racist frames. And because of the Democrats don't actually have any vision on immigration and they still ultimately you know, I think their framework is very much we help the people who are here because they've done something for us. So the framework has been essential workers. The framework has been like, you know, they came here as no fault of their own, like mm -hmm. for the dreamers right. or that, you know, so the framework has always been like these people are innocent who live in this country and they support our like farm work, you know, they're farm workers. They work at our restaurants for no, you know, like all these other things <laughs> that 
this sort of like symbiotic relationship with Mexico, where we have all this sort of like underclass of people who do this work, you know, they've kind of been in that headspace of, well, can we actually like support them? But I don't think there's actually any real framework or desire to support people who are coming and, and, or, and they're not like necessarily getting pushed on it. Right. Like I right. think ultimately like the, the base again, like I think the part of the reason we've had some of these wins on detention is because they're being pushed on it. And because mm-hmm. the like broader framework around incarceration and policing is, is there and it exists. Um, whereas I think on the border, I mean, even within the immigrant right, like it's always just been a border militarization frame. And we, you know, I think in the Trump era, there was some desire to move away from that um, because of Trump. But actually what we ended up seeing was Trump, like, like they took this on that much more and their fear of losing the midterms and 2024 sort of defines everything for them. And then they put people like Susan Rice and mm-hmm. Ron Klain and Jake Sullivan, like these people, I mean, and Susan Rice, especially, I mean, just not particularly sharp or smart on these things. I think trying really like making a lot of this worse than it could be. And I think that's also been uh, a challenge, but I, again, I think it like so much of this is their fear of losing and then not being bold enough quickly enough. So like, because they waited on title, if they had done ended title 42 in January of 2021, or even like last summer or something like, would we be in this place? I don't know. But because they waited so long, I think this is partially why we're in this place right now. Right. And I mean, on Title 42 specifically, I feel like it's important to say not just, oh, if they had ended it, but to sort of call them out for how in a way easy it would have been for them to end it. It's not exactly like this is a uh, super complicated thing, really. This is something that the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, has had to affirmatively reauthorize every three months. So this is literally something that they have been reauthorizing and reauthorizing and now when finally on april 1st they put out this letter saying oh we'll end it on may 23rd despite yes the fact that there's like legal and congressional challenges to that now i guess they uh in the letter the in their basically their press release over the decision to end or not at least um not even more like uh you know not reauthorize title 42 they cited like essentially that under the new under cdc's new community level transmission guidelines <laughs> or whatever which we've talked about at length on the show mm. that um that there was like low enough risk or threat in the United States at this point that now they can, you know, continue to accept people in completely, you know, missing the entire point, obviously, which is that this had no basis in the first place. I mean, no basis in public health in the first place, certainly no basis in uh, anything really but xenophobia. I mean, we talked about the Stephen Miller stuff, but, um, you know, specifically as like it's very striking to go back to basically like Trump era coverage of this and to read about it and how explicit it really is and how how it's basically, you know, I think consensus among I'd, I'd say most liberals that like, oh, yeah, Title 42 is like pretty clearly the brainchild of like trying to essentially perpetuate the Muslim ban or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the like horrible uh, border policies that the Trump administration had been trying and uh in some cases failing but in some cases unfortunately succeeding in doing um but you get stuff like uh like if you look back at some of that stuff it's there's stuff like this which is that like in a october 2020 uh ap news report for example um it was reported that mike pence had 
uh, Mike Pence and other members of the uh, Trump administration had directly put pressure on CDC officials to enact Title 42. Yeah. um, That basically there was within the agency, there, there was basically a broad understanding that like there was no public health benefit to stopping immigration. There was no public health benefit to doing this and that this was just clearly part of the administration's agenda. One of the quotes from that uh, is in here, there's someone who's speaking anonymously says, quote, they forced us. It's either do it or get fired. And uh, this same this same report that I'm talking about literally ends with a quote saying, uh, I don't know how you could look another CDC scientist in the eye after doing this. It's a profound dereliction of duty for a CDC director. Now, keep in mind that Biden's CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, has been renewing this every three months this whole time so it's like i don't know it's it's just impressive how quickly it turned around i mean it reminds me of like um how you know biden floated uh keeping the trump level amount of refugees (laughs) that they wanted to admit and then they just they you know backed down on that but they still ended up changing the number like the the cap on refugees to like yeah half of what they had promised on the campaign trail you know it's just amazing how the it's such a it's like well, there's they, a Biden amnesia or something. <laughs> there's you know like I mean? an amnesia and a sort of rebranding. So like mm-hmm. it's like this, you know, I, I think early on there was this thing that happened with family detention where, you know, parents and their children are held together um, in a detention center. And, you know, this was one of the big like at the end of the Obama administration, he like brought it back in full force. And so we were like, what are y'all doing? We <laughs> this this really needs to end. And they sort of re named these facilities into migrant shelters or something. I can't remember what they're called. It was Classic. so wild. We were like, it was like migrant processing center or something. I can't, it was just such a Sunshine Hills yeah, nice detention center. Residential yeah, exactly. welcome center. Yeah. Uh, and, and opportunity zone and market based <laughs> But so many of these, yeah, so many of the detention centers are actually called like residential centers or something, Jesus. some nonsense like that. But I think, um, or processing centers, like there's just a lot of euphemisms for for what's happening in general but but it is i mean i don't know i was thinking a little bit about your question phil and like i feel like you know ultimately like this whole strategy has always been a bipartisan strategy like some of the harshest immigration laws we've had in the last 30 years have been under like clinton in particular and um i I think like I think about some of the things that they've done, for instance, they've had some opportunity like there. There actually has been multiple states that have said we're going to ban private prisons. And the Biden administration is actually like continuing on Trump lawsuits against those states. And they've had an opportunity on migrant prosecutions. There's this law called 1326 which is unauthorized reentry, which means that somebody who crosses the border twice twice without documentation is, you know, incarcerated for 18 months to two years, sometimes up to 20 years, depending on severity of the conviction. And they they actually like a Nevada judge came out and said, this is unconstitutional because it's racist. And so that was an opportunity to say, hey, actually, we can end 1326. This, this no longer has to be law. And, you know, like the Biden administration is fighting that as well. Like DOJ immediately appealed and (laughs) it's wild because you're just like, these are actually kind of amazing opportunities to like move away from these sort of carceral approaches, criminalizing approaches to immigration. And 
they are supporting it. And I think it's because I, I think like at some level, there is some desire to sort of outwardly say we're pro-immigrant and we want to support immigrants here to like get the support of, you know, immigrant communities that have status and liberals to some degree, like the NPR crowd. But then there's a complete like I think there's actually a consensus among both parties that actually deterrence is the main strategy when it comes to the border. And they are sort of in like they they actually don't disagree with that. I mean, it goes back to Kamala Harris saying, do not come like, you know, it's so much right. of and that was as much for like that was mostly for like people here more so than people probably in Guatemala. But like it's it's very much um, a framework that is. Yeah, like, they, I mean, they're just completely supportive of the deterrence frame. So I think it's like both this fear, like they have some fears around the election. So they're not fighting on certain things or they're not being as bold on immigration. But I think they actually like completely believe in a deterrence strategy and Trump like moved the needle on that. And so they're much further on it because Trump moved the needle. Mm, I mean, that's an interesting way to think about it, because I think if you just... From what Artie was running through as a just sort of like small snapshot of actually how much more work has probably gone into maintaining Title 42 than uh, would have gone into just letting it expire. Right. Right. Like that there was there was like a decision that had to be made that the CDC was going to put the resources into doing that reauthorization and that they were going to commit to that. That takes resources, intellectual resources, like, you know, human capital was directed towards that, right? They prioritized that. They are not prioritizing challenging um, the mask mandate on public transportation using also something from the 1944 same act that Title 44 is, Title 42 is coming from, right? Like the 1944 Public Health Service Act, you know, it's like, they're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to be really hold true to this uh, bizarre interpretation of this one part of one law, and we're going to completely ignore and allow a different bizarre interpretation of the same law. And it's like this, this like uh, the the basically what I'm trying to say, I guess, is like the energy is going into the messaging and the rebranding and the positioning and the planning for the midterm, and it's going into doing these reauthorizations. And it's absolutely sickening to consider the fact that this is also sort of put in a position, um, as Artie was saying, of being predicated. Like they said, oh, finally, we're going to stop going through the work of uh, renewing Title 42 because now community levels make it okay. So it's sort of predicated on the fact that, oh, yeah, now that now that we've reached this point of, quote unquote, endemicity, right, and the virus is not going to control our lives anymore, this is now when it's okay. So it's not only like, you know, validating the fact that Title 42 was necessary, which is a lie, but it also like creates this rift, right, where you can very easily now pit COVID protections against uh, immigration justice, right? Because ending Title 42 is imperative. And if the CDC is saying that the condition for ending Title 42 is that the emergency of COVID must be over because they've decided to retain its validity from the Trump administration, because as you're saying, Silky, this is a political priority for them. Um, you know, this is a this is a terrible scenario because ending Title 42 is just as fucking urgent as reinstating any type of COVID protections that we possibly could. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. And I think the question is like it 
I don't know. You know, we'll see if it actually like it, it doesn't actually feel like it's going to end next week um, based on what we're seeing with the case in Louisiana. And 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 sort of I mean, the interesting thing is like the argument in that case is very much. Well, if we end Title 42, our healthcare system, our schools, our like law enforcement are going to be overrun. <laughs> and yeah. so it's this weird thing where it's like, okay, the conditions in the U.S. are are not great for people, not in any of these contexts. And now, actually, we're going to use this policy that is meant to be about public health generally to like then protect these systems that aren't working in and of themselves. And so I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, a it, 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 the hypocrisy was like, it's just like in so many ways, there's just so much hypocrisy to the way that the Biden administration has approached, approached title 42 in relationship to the pandemic. Um, and that's been really hard to negotiate. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we're ra- rapidly approaching a moment where, uh, they're going to like revoke the public health emergency and we are still going to have like title 42. In fact. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. No. And, and, and then, I mean, and that's the thing, like that's, that's where the Democrats like lack of boldness and lack mm-hmm. of like any sort of foundational commitment to anything <laughs> is um, means that basically we, we kind of have this obscure law that now just becomes the political tool. Like that's, that's sort of what essentially has happened now. So, and I think, you know, in terms of like, uh, how I want to just frame the takeaway from this is that it's not just necessarily that we're talking about this as like one instance of old laws being repurposed and sort of reframed in a new historical context in order to further anti-immigrant agendas that are sort of hidden behind these facades of like public safety or public health or, you know, domestic Uh, border protections to protect us from international terrorists or whatever the kind of like otherized threat that they're going to stand up as a straw man to justify the sort of need for these things. You know, um, one of the things that I think is important to consider here is that this is a historical echo of, you know, the kind of appropriation of like old uh, xenophobic laws in like contemporary contexts. But it's also part of a trend of just increasing the enforcement apparatus and increasing the criminalization of immigration that got started in the early 90s. And you talked about this as being kind of one of the actual genesis points for Detention Watch Network coming together in the first place. So I wonder if like we could talk about sort of those historical echoes and how we went from like, for example, I read somewhere that in the, you know, the the mid 1990s, there were like 4,000 uh, prosecutions a year. And then we went to like 50,000 by 2001. So how did we sort of like, can we talk through sort of like how we sort of got in this pattern of like increasing in scale? One thing to sort of name around this new, I don't, it, it, new and old framework of public health, because it has been used as a tool for exclusion for a very long time is that they they do have all these sort of frameworks that they put out. And, and in fact, even in Biden's interior enforcement priorities, so like the priorities for who should be targeted for detention and deportation, they actually lay out the framework themselves, which is essentially like a public safe, safety frame. You know, like they have these three categories. So it's like public safety, which we know is largely like focused on Black migrants often um, in this particular way. And then national security, which is very much in the like 
post nineties era anti-Muslim sentiment Mm -hmm. and border security, which is like Mexican, Central Americans, et cetera. So like that's, (laughs) that's sort of the framework that they put out. And I I think there is this question I have, like from the way that they use 9-11 as a tool to really expand the whole deportation apparatus and machine. um, I'm curious, like where we go here on this sort of public health framework and how this is going to look in a few years and in this context, whether whether there will be things that are embedded like Title 42 or some version of, you know, they're trying to make it more permanent. And, and I think that's a big question for us. So in terms of the history, I mean, I think what is really important to understand is that these the history of immigration, especially like immigration enforcement policy, can't at all be divorced from the growth of mass incarceration in the U.S., uh, especially in the last 40 years. So and and I think the other piece that it can't be divorced from in that we are seeing today and that we saw in the early 90s and that we saw in the 70s and 80s is that actually so much immigration policy and the ways they've approached using detention or deportation or, you know, these models of offshore detention has been specifically about Haitians themselves. And and so like very much you know, in the context of Haitians coming in the 70s and 80s, we started to see the growth of immigration detention in Florida mm-hmm. um, and then at other bases around the country in the late 80s and early 90s. There was very specific targeting of Haitians because of HIV, because of, you know, like in really seeing actually when um, Karma Chavez has this book called The Borders of AIDS that sort of gets into this history where actually it was like, okay, the concerns we have around people who have AIDS or HIV is like queer people, um, heroin users and Haitians were like, the, you know, like the concern, like they literally signaled out Haitians in particular, and then were detaining them offshore in Guantanamo Bay um, because they were tested positive for HIV or had a family member that tested positive for HIV. And so this was a framework used to exclude people. And in fact, that it was one of the things that was interesting about that moment um, and horrifying about that moment was despite in the 80s when Reagan said, you know, like Reagan moved IRCA, which had was amnesty for undocumented people in the U.S. at the time. In fact, that sort of shift on policy around HIV AIDS meant that people who are currently living in the U.S. also were sort of limited from getting status because if they tested positive for HIV um, and so it was both people in the U.S. that were impacted and also people who were coming. And then that ended up having meaning this like sort of Haitian prison camp um, in Guantanamo Bay. So those were moments where we started to see the detention system grow and very specifically as it related to that, but also related to the drug war, where this all became sort of permanent law, like mandatory detention, mandatory mm-hmm. deportation um, and through sort of how people engaged with the criminal punishment system. And then in the 90s, we, yeah, we were, you know, I think both the detention system was, you know, maybe like 7,000 beds or something. And then after the 1996 laws that shifted the paradigm in so many ways, we went like skyrocketed to like 16,000 beds. Um, And then that sort of has exponentially grown. And then on sort of what you were referring to Beatrice in terms of the migrant prosecutions, like so much of that is about both the like operations at the border. So this thing called, you know, at the time, like Operation Gatekeeper, but there's also Operation Streamline, 
where like mass prosecutions would happen. And these are laws that have been on the books, like you said, since 1929. Yeah. That said people who could, you know, whenever they cross the border without documentation, it was considered unauthorized re-entry. And then if they did it twice, re-entry and serving 30 days to six months to two years. Like, I mean, so much of the federal prison system from the late 90s to now has increasingly been about immigration prosecutions. And some of that has actually gone down significantly, but that's only because of Title 42 and the border closure. So like <laughs> Border Patrol can't actually like recommend people for prosecution because they're not letting people in in the same way. But that we expect those numbers to go up significantly once the border opens. Um, and and those numbers, I mean, it's it's so so it's important to understand that like both it's um these laws being put into practice and, and so much, you know, there's so many laws on the books that like you know, are ignored all the time. And these right. were to some degree for many, many years, some people would be prosecuted, but not the numbers that we saw. And so I think it was a combination of political intent by U.S. attorneys, um, by the federal government to say, we want to target more people for prosecution, but also is the number of Border Patrol. Like as Border Patrol has had more resources they've been able to target more people and they, and as, you know, as there's more and more border patrol, the largest law enforcement, you know, entity in the country. Um, that's why the prosecutions have gone up. So I think for us, like part of the reason we really call for defund is, you know, if you cut the number of people that exist to target people, you're not going to have as many people funneled into the system. Mm -hmm. um, if you cut the number of beds, you're not going to have this incentive to fill those beds. Um, so I think that's a really critical piece. And I will say, like, just in the politics, like thinking about the politics of this moment and Biden, I think one of our biggest challenges, like under the Obama administration, like they've been sort of approaching the agencies in a way that the Obama administration did, which was let's, you know, have this memo that tells ICE agents and Border Patrol what they should do, like what they should prioritize. But you know, and maybe under the Obama administrations, like some of that work, like they moved a lot of the sort of work to headquarters and there was like a sort of through line there. But Trump sort of undid that and said, actually, you as an ICE agent on the ground, you have the complete authority to do whatever the hell you want. And I think in this sort of moment with Biden, there's this like there's this tug of war between, you know, the ICE union and the Border Patrol union and <laughs> a need to sort of like manage them and what they're signaling to them with what they say. So like what they're saying on title 42, what they're saying on detention, et cetera. Like a lot of times there'll be signaling things to them, but it doesn't really matter. Like, it's just sort of this strange thing. It's like, why are you like, actually you just need to like cut the number of agents and like get rid of some of these people. Like they are Trump's mob essentially at this point. And in fact, like the border patrol union came out last week with the, baby formula stuff saying like, oh, look, Biden's sending baby formula to babies at the border. But nobody like it was just wild. It's just like they're yeah. very actively saying we want babies to die, even though like, I don't know. It's so it's so illogical, especially in the context of Roe. You're just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, I just don't even know how to process it. But I just think like there is this this big challenge we have right now where ultimately like people are kind of 
at different wavelengths because it's just like, no, like Border Patrol and ICE are just Trump's mob. They just want to do that work. And like Biden's trying to reform them in some way. And it's just not going to work. Right. Right. You just have to remove their capacity. Right. You can't like try and. uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can send them a memo begging them to behave and expect that to do anything if they still are like uh, fully resourced (laughs) at the level that they're resourced with like other things being under resourced. Or if they still (laughs) exist. Yeah. Yeah. It betrays a profound misunderstanding of. uh, Let's see here. uh, Power politics. (laughs) Power (laughs) politics. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I and I appreciate, you know, I I appreciate the way Silky that you're highlighting this this kind of fact that it comes down to very much this process of like political will and conceptual austerity and these ideas that I think, you know, we challenge all the time when it comes to thinking through like the provisioning of health resources, right? Where it's all at the end of the day about these artificial conversations about decisions that we have made about how we want to make and enforce laws, which we pretend are facts of human nature and that we're like beholden to. Right. But then, you know, it it requires a lot of work to undo. And I appreciate the work that you have done for you've been working on this a long time, Silky. And I really appreciate you coming today to just talk with us about that and you know, give us a chance to vent about something that we have wanted to cover on the show, but haven't really had uh, the chance to yet. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I am a huge fan of death panels, so it's been an honor to be on with y'all. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. And um, if you want to follow Silky, she is on Twitter at SilkyS13. Silky, thank you so much again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And patrons, Thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, see you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs> <laughs>